You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. We are in Psalm 132. If you've been with us, we've been going through what's been classed as the Psalms of Ascent. You might have noticed that little title above every psalm, A Song of Ascent. These are the psalms that were sung as the pilgrims journeyed up to Jerusalem for the great pilgrim festivals. And in many ways, they are a type or a picture of a lot of the struggles and battles that we all journey through on this life as we journey up to the house of the Lord, as we look forward to that destiny that we have in the future, the Psalms of Ascent. And we are going to finish them tonight with these final three psalms. Psalm 132 is actually the longest of all of these psalms, and fittingly its focus is the Ark of God and the covenant made with David, If you know about the covenant made with David, it's one of the most important covenants in the Bible. It pops up throughout the Psalms all the time. We'll talk about it a little bit today. Now, what this Psalm does is really talk about David's zeal for bringing the Ark of the Lord back to the house of Jerusalem. And I would say, if I could spiritualize a little bit, it is a good picture for us of our desire of going up to the house of the Lord, what things we think about in our lives, what is our greatest passion, and it gives us a very good picture of the Christian life. The ark, as many of you may know, is often used as a symbol or an illustration of Jesus Christ, the dwelling place of God, and we follow Jesus in this world until we arrive to our heavenly destiny. And just as David and the pilgrims had this desire to bring the ark back to Jerusalem, we see the parallels here. Let's just jump straight in. We'll do a few verses at a time. Let's read the first five verses. Remember, O Lord, on David's behalf all his affliction, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, surely I will not enter my house nor lie on my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Now, I love these first five verses. Um, they're probably my favorite, actually, well, i say the last few I like to, but these are probably my favorite in the beginning of this psalm because it just simply describes a man whose thought life is absolutely consumed with doing right by the Lord. He's sitting there, he's the king of Israel, yet he knows the ark is not with him, it's not where it should be. He is dwelling in palaces at this time when the ark of the Lord, if you remember at this time, it was resting in a place called Kiriath-Jerim, and it needed to be brought back to Jerusalem, and this was part of what David uh, was involved in. However, let's just stop for a minute and say, this was David's passion. Let's ask ourselves, it's a good time when you're studying things like this, what is the most consuming ambition in your life? What is the most consuming passion? I think if we speak to anyone in casual conversation, Everyone's able to list a few goals that they would like to accomplish in the next five years. Nothing wrong with that at all. But ask yourself again, how many of those actually involve the Lord? Now, of course, I'm not saying the Lord's not involved in all the decisions of our life. He absolutely is. But David was a man in this stage of his life. It says he would not even sleep. He couldn't even slumber because his mind, his ambition to bring the ark to Zion was so great. And it challenges me that. It just gives me, David said to be a man after the Lord's own heart. We can learn a lot from him. And he had a passion for the Lord here. And the psalmist, uh, he is pleading with the Lord 
to just remember how passionately David sought the house of God, sought to bless the people of Israel. The background to this psalm comes from the story in 2 Samuel 6. The ark, remember, was in that small town, like I mentioned, Kiriath-Jerim. David was not happy in Jerusalem. He wanted it with him in Zion. And he had this attempt where he copied the way that the Philistines moved the ark when they dumped it there. You remember the story. They were carrying it on a cart, and it was about to fall over. And then one man called Uzziah, or Uzzah, I believe, he went to steady it, and the Lord struck him dead for that irreverence. Now, a lot of people get shocked by this story. And when we studied it, we looked at the reason for this. And the reason, quite simply, was they were not transporting the ark the way that God had said, revealed in his word, that it should be transported. So how we worship, how we live, must be according to the revealed will of God that we have in the scriptures. People take this very lightly. And often we use the term grace as an excuse for that. And I think that's a big misuse of the term. Yes, grace is absolutely amazing. It covers us for all our sins. But the word of God is what we have to follow and we have to walk in obedience to it. David did get the ark to Jerusalem, if you remember. When Uzzah died, he was so shocked by it that he went back. He studied the scriptures in the Old Testament, found out how God revealed that he should be moving the ark. And then he redid the whole thing again and he got the ark back to Jerusalem. And then... Well, the background for this really comes from 2 Samuel 7. I'll read it, just a couple of verses. This was just before he actually moved the ark. It said, Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. So that, that was his desire, it, and it actually gave rise to one of the most amazing promises we find in the Bible. However, we know that it actually wasn't David who was going to be the one who built this temple for the Lord, was it? David, because he was a man of bloodshed, it said that he would not be the one to do it. It would actually be his son Solomon who would build the temple. David then started making preparations for his son you remember he started collecting the wood and the gold and all the, all the resources that his son would need to build the temple however I believe we should try and emulate David we should have that passion to honor the Lord in those things that we do to the point I'm not saying literally but to the point that you don't even sleep until God is honored in your life that for me is just so challenging because it's easy to feel like you've done your duty and just sort of get on with life but in many ways, the Christian life is exacting. It's, it's trying, it's exacting, it's hard. It's not an easy thing. You don't accept Christianity because it's going to give you an easy life. You accept it because it's true, because you understand what the Lord has revealed to you, that you want forgiveness, and uh, numerous other reasons that can all be true simultaneously. However, really, we're in a weird cultural moment where a lot of people come to Christianity or the church or religion in many ways for companionship or for a social club or a way to help the community and I'm not demeaning any of those things except if they are central as opposed to being on the the outworking of your faith then you're going to miss the core of your faith which is Jesus Christ himself and we've seen this many times I've talked about this with you many times you have to have it the white way around the core has to be the person death burial resurrection of Jesus Christ and the outworking of your faith will flow from that very much just like we just saw with moving the ark 
the king had to follow the directions of the Lord to move the ark. That was his service. That was what he was required to do. With us, we love the Lord. We seek to be obedient to him. We must walk in his will. Let's look at verse 6 to 9. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the field of Jah. Let us go into his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your godly ones sing for joy. So it says, we heard of it. Now, it, most people assume, is that it's actually referring to the ark. Ephrathah was the region where kiriath Jerim was, and they heard of it in the time of Saul, and it was found in David, and not we just talked, brought back to Jerusalem. And it says the faithful, the pilgrims who sing, they sing this psalm because they long to be in the dwelling place of God. Look at verse 7. Let us go into his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. And that, I believe, is really the heart of a true believer. Regardless of anything else, our desire should be to be in the dwelling place of God. Now, we know that is found in the person of Jesus Christ in our present age right now, but that should be our desire. We should fellowship with the Lord in that way. And then it says we worship at his footstool. Now, this is really referring in the context of the psalm to the localized place where God was dwelling, which was above the ark, which was now back in Zion. However, we could expand this. Let me read to you Isaiah 66, verses 1 to 2, just to give you a more a larger picture of this footstool imagery that is often found in the Bible. Isaiah 66, verse 1 to 2 says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me, and there is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble, contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. So in many ways, yes, at this time, Zion, the ark, was the localized place where God was dwelling with his people, yet at the same time, he, this is the sovereign king of the universe we're talking about. The very earth is brought into existence by his creative word. He, the whole thing, is his footstool. Verse 8, it says, Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Now these verses are actually quoted by Solomon. And a lot of people, because of this, extrapolate that Solomon was actually the author of this psalm. You can't prove it, but it, you know, he does actually, when we, I'll read it to you in Second Chronicles. He, he, remember when he, he'd finished building the temple and they had that amazing dedication ceremony, sacrificed everything, and he, he stands up and he says he lifts his arms up and he does this amazing prayer. Part of that prayer reads, Second uh, Chronicles 6, verse 40, Now, O my God, I pray... Let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. Therefore arise, O Lord God, to your resting place. You and the ark of your might, let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation and let your godly ones rejoice in what is good. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed. Remember your loving kindness to your servant David. And you can see there the two verses he quotes in 41 is an pretty much an exact quotation from this psalm. Many people say that this psalm has very early origins or that he is in fact the author of it. It says, let your priests be clothed with righteousness. The idea behind that is, in the service of such a God, the God of Israel, the priests, these ministers of religions, they should be holy. They should be set apart for that sacred task, which is exactly what the Bible teaches the priesthood was in the Old Testament. However, there is a problem, we also know, where do we get this holiness from? 
we don't have anything holy necessarily in ourselves, do we, that can do this. This righteousness that is clothing us must come from the Lord. And it is often pictured and talked about throughout the Bible as a garment, the garments of righteousness, the garments of salvation used interchangeably almost. Isaiah 61 verse 10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in the Lord. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, as a bride adorns herself with, the jewel, with her jewels. So we see this theme all through the scripture, these garments that are given to us when you believe in the Lord. And this is in many ways what all of those uh, rituals with the high priest and the, the blood and the anointing of the oil of all their special robes that they had in the Old Testament are picturing for us the garments of salvation that we get from the Lord. And do you remember in Revelation 19, it also says, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come. Her bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean for the linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So you find this theme throughout the Bible and it says, and let your godly ones sing for joy. So these holy ones, these priests, these people clothed in the garments of salvation, they should be truly worshipping and honouring the Lord. They should be happy in such a God that they get to serve him. In his presence, in the service, this is their Lord. They love him. The fact that there is such a God, that such a God loves them, that such a God has saved them, has redeemed them, this should cause us to glorify him, to enjoy him, and fill our minds and our hearts to the point that just like David everything we think about is consumed with bringing glory and honour to God. Now that's hard in a fallen world. We all know that. David knew that. We studied, haven't we? He, we've seen him fall dramatically throughout the Psalms, throughout the historical books. But still, the grace and repentance and forgiveness that he had, he could still have a life that honoured the Lord. Verse 10, For the sake of David your servant, do not turn away the face of your anointed, the Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body I will set upon your throne. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I will teach them, their sons will also sit upon your throne forever. Now remember, it wasn't David, it was Solomon that built this house. However, because the Lord was so impressed with David's heart, desire to build a house for the Lord, he turned around to David and he said, although it won't be you who is building my house, I'm going to build you a house. We call this, and it was a house of people he was referring to, we call this a dynasty, you might say, a Davidic dynasty. He was always going to have a descendant to sit upon the throne of Israel. We call this the Davidic covenant, and it is found in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12 to 16. I'm going to read it for you now because it's just so important for the context. This was the Davidic covenant with David. The Lord said, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I shall raise up for, you, for your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me when he commits iniquity. I will correct him with the rod of men and with the strokes of the sons of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, and your throne shall be established forever. Obviously, initially, he's referring to Solomon in this text, but in the parallel passage, I won't read to you, it's much longer in Second Chronicles, you find out that he's also referring 
past the time of Solomon. He says the throne will endure forever. And this is why when Jesus Christ ascended to the Father, it says he sat at the right hand of the Father of God until the time was for him to come back and take his place on the throne of David. He is that descendant, that he is the promised one of this covenant that will always be available because he's eternal. There will always be a descendant fit to take the throne of David. That's what this is referring to. Now the last portion of this psalm, verses 13 to 18, let's read it. It's full of messianic allusions now as it's just given us that Davidic reference. It says, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her needy with bread. Her priests also I will clothe with salvation, and her godly ones will sing aloud for joy. And there I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall shine. So I think in this last section we see really looking forward to Messiah's kingdom beyond the reigns of David and Solomon and all those Davidic kings, something that goes further than than their rule. It speaks and looks to the eternal dwelling place of God, the horn of David. Now we find this language confirmed in the New Testament. In fact, we find it associated with John the Baptist of all people. And this is significant because John the Baptist had a very specific role in the New Testament. Remember, he was the one who was to prepare the way of the Lord. And who is the Lord? The Lord is this descendant of David that we're talking about who will sit on the throne. Let me read to you Luke chapter 1. Listen to this language. It's very similar to what we've just read in this psalm and in in the book of Samuel. Luke chapter 1 verse 68. It says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David. This is Zacharias, sorry, I should say, saying this. This was the father of uh, John the Baptist. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, and he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy towards our fathers, to remember his covenant, the oath he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness, righteousness before him all our days, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of his sins. So here we see another descendant who is called a horn of David, who is one who will prepare the way of the Lord. So you see this Davidic motif still here with John the Baptist, and we know now, obviously with hindsight, who John the Baptist was preparing the way for, that was Jesus Christ. In just one more chapter, in Luke chapter 2, do you remember when Jesus, the baby, is brought to the, uh, he's being dedicated at the temple, and you get that aged saint, Simeon, who just wanted to see the Messiah before he died. That was his biggest desire, that was his dream. He was obviously a faithful, what we'd call an Old Testament saint at this time. And he said, now, Lord, after he sees the Messiah, he says, now, Lord, you're releasing your bondservant to depart in peace, according to your word. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. That's part of the Christmas story that I always love to look at, those wonderful verses there. You see these two old, Old Testament saints looking, the horn of David, preparing the way for salvation, 
to salvation actually being personified in this sense in the coming of Jesus, whose actual name does mean salvation. That's what Yeshua means. You see all these ties just being fulfilled in this one person that we have here. And ultimately, that is what we look forward to when Christ comes back and takes the seat of David, the throne of David. This is Psalm 132. Now, there's a reason why I think that's the longest one in the Psalms of Ascent. Imagine the pilgrims on their journey, just on the gates, involved in everything that's going on there. What should be the focus? Should be the Ark of the Lord, should be dwe- the, which is now in the Holy of Holies, isn't it? That's where the presence of God is dwelling. That's where the blood was sprinkled on top of the mercy seat. All of these things are picturing Jesus Christ for us. That is why the Ark of the Covenant, that is why I believe it gives us this text about the Davidic covenant, about the future descendant, who, the, who is the one that all of these things are pointing to as its fulfillment. Let's move straight on into Psalm 133. You'll notice that these next two Psalms are almost sort of postscripts. They're two or three verses each. So we won't spend huge amounts of time on them, but they are uh, a fitting end to the songs of ascent. So Psalm 133, this is the penultimate Psalm, we could say. Now, You imagine the pilgrims here, all the journey is behind them at this stage. They're there, they're in Jerusalem, they've come to Zion. The journey wouldn't have been easy. Yes, it would have been a time of singing and joy and dancing, but traveling long distances with your family, if you've ever done these sorts of things, you know can be very trying, uh, particularly in first century Judea, I'd imagine. All of the toil of the journey, all the disputes, all the arguments, all the troubles that probably would have accompanied much of this journey, that is all behind them now. And what we have here, as they enter the city of the great king, I just find it so fascinating that the thing that we are exhorted to now, we are told is so good, so pleasant above all else, is the sweetness of unity amongst believers. And that is a serious thing. Let's read the psalm and then we'll we'll go into this a little bit. It says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. That's Psalm 133. That's it. It starts with the word behold. You'll notice the next psalm also, the next one starts with the word behold. They're almost written like a couplet. Behold, the word literally means look, take notice, Stand to attention and understand what's being said, basically. Good and pleasant. For brothers, behold how good and how pleasant it is. Now, is the unity among the brethren. It's good. That means it's a positive thing. It is the proper state of affairs. The word pleasant that is used here is a word that means lovely, you could say charming, even attractive. That which fills your mind and your heart with delight. For brothers to dwell in unity. And to dwell in unity, this shows that you had a united purpose. You have a sharing of a common salvation. You share in the sweet delights of God. You have a mutual recognition of a shared redeemer who saved you. You're in service to the same master. You have the same destiny and the same future. You have the same journey that you've all been taking on through this fallen world. The same trials, the same tribulations, the same temptations. Thus, to be unified together, to go through these things together and arrive at Zion, at the house of God, the dwelling place of God, to see Jesus Christ as he is, that is truly the most wonderful thing we can experience. However, we know that in a fallen world, unity is a hard thing to have in a church. And this is why we believe it's a supernatural thing through the Holy Spirit. But it is a very important witness to the world. This is why 
the Israelites and equally for the church. We are called to be what we, what we often say a peculiar people, a people who are different, a people who are set apart, a people who live to a different playbook, sing to a different hymn sheet, you could say. We follow the Lord. We would go against the culture on many things, but yet we love the Lord. This is it. We're in his service. Clearly visible, it should be, when you look at the body of Christ, is the goodness and sweetness of the fellowship that we have. Now, this is an exhortation. Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6, gives us the spiritual background to this. He says, I, the prisoner, this is the Apostle Paul, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with humility and gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, because there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and the Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Just a wonderful passage there in the book of Ephesians. Now, understand it. We all know very well, don't we, that often unity in the church is hard to accomplish. Often there are things that cause disunity. This is what Satan's behind a lot of this. He loves to cause disunity in the church. We have a lot of differences with a lot of people, we all have different personalities. We all have different uh, passions, different views. We often view different parts of the world differently. But in spite of all that, I believe this exhortation that Paul is giving us here, we must have core, common, foundational essentials that we all share. If we major on them, then the other things will come behind that in importance. If we major on the other things on our differences, maybe on our, our differing eschatological views. If we focus on them as the main identity that we have or dividing point, I believe at some point you're going to get into conflict with your brothers and sisters. But it says humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance for one another, preserving the unity of the spirit, and then all of those ones. These are our common foundational essentials that make that dwelling in unity possible. One body. This is the baptism, this is what the baptism of the Spirit does. Baptizes you into one body. Entrance and membership into the body of Jesus Christ by one Spirit, just as you were called one hope. That is the hope who we serve. Who is the hope? It's Jesus Christ, it says literally, doesn't it, in the Bible. One calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all. I mean, you could spend a lifetime studying all of those things. They are, I say they're, they're the things that unite us. They're also major areas of theology that we should just pour our hearts and our lives into. And if we're doing that, you find someone else who's pouring their heart and their life into those things and you will have a unity with them. You might not see eye to eye on every other thing, but these are the things that must unite us. I believe these are the things that will make our journey together good and pleasant. Think of that pilgrim caravan again as you're traveling up to Jerusalem. If you're all intent on getting to the same place, if you're all intent, intent on being there at the right time, doing the right thing, you'll have a much smoother journey. And this is, I believe, what the exhortation is really uh, commanding us to. And I think we have that exhortation because, as many times it warns us in the New Testament, there is an enemy of our souls who loves to cause division and loves to set us against one another. And too often he succeeds in doing that. And I believe that happens for a lot of different reasons, but. Sometimes it's simply because we take our hearts and our minds away from those things that Paul listed. One body, one faith, one baptism, all these different things that are the foundational core of who we are as the body of Christ. 
Jesus prays a prayer for his disciples. And he says that actually our unity is the ultimate witness. It's the testimony, the proof to the world that his father sent the son. And that's a challenging concept. Listen to John 17, the priestly prayer of Jesus. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these, this is Jesus praying to his father, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, this is very challenging. He's basically saying that we, he wants all of his people, the body of Christ, to be one in the same way that Christ and the Father could say they are one in that sense of the Trinity there. That's how united he wants us to be because the world will see that and then they'll know that the message of Jesus is true because his people are living according to his commands. We're representing Christ in that way. It's a huge responsibility. Now, this is why the Lord endows us with the Holy Spirit. This is why we're indwelt with his spirit and we have the body of Christ. But I believe it's sometimes nice just to think on that and you know, it will really help you in your behaviour because we've all been in these situations where we find unity hard or you find the social element of church hard. That's nothing to be ashamed of at all. That's kind of human nature in many ways for, for some of us. Some people love the social and they don't like the other parts so much. We get all different things. I, I believe the key to this is balance. You've got to have those foundations. And you've got to have your faith coming from them as the centre. They're the engine of, of your faith, you might say, and everything you do should come from them. It should urge us to be more unified as a, sh a church. It should urge us to show uh, maturity in areas, to lay down any divisions that we might have, um, anything that's aggravated us in our flesh. Sometimes we need to give that to the Lord. We find Paul appealing, almost in every epistle at some point, he appeals to the churches for something similar to this. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian church was a church that was plagued by divisions. Do you remember their arguments? Some of you are saying, I'm Paul. Some of you are saying you're from Apollos. Some of you are saying you're from Christ. Is Christ divided? As he asked this quite sternly to them. He says, I, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and of the same judgment. And where do you get those same minds and the same judgments? Well, they come from all those things that Paul previously listed. The one body, the one faith, the one baptism, the one calling, the one hope. That's where they come from. Major on those ones that Paul lists us there. Unity, when you have it or if you've experienced fellowship, it is sweet, it is beautiful. The body of Christ, when walking in the spirit, is like no other thing on this earth. And so it shouldn't be. The psalmist here gives us a couple of uh, lovely illustrations. He says it's like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down to the edge of his robes. Now the picture that you get from this is really trying to portray, I believe, how completely this unity should flow from top to bottom in the church or in the body of Christ in a, in a group of believers and cover it with a pleasant fragrance. The anointing of the high priest that is being described here that oil was made from the finest spices. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 30, myrrh, cinnamon, cassia, mixed with olive oil, and all these wonderful things that would have just produced such a, a, a massive aroma to anyone within that atmosphere who was breathing that in or who was around there. And then you would see the high priest conduct his sacred duties to this sweet-smelling aroma to everyone who was watching him do this. And this is a very good picture of really what we should try and emulate in the church, the unity of the body of Christ, 
The fellowship that we have should, in many ways, be like that oil. It should cover us. It should leave a pleasant smell in the atmosphere. The New Testament calls this the fragrance of Christ. I believe that's what it's referring to there. As we go about ministering the sacred things that we do in the house of the Lord, and for us, obviously, we're not in a specific location like the priests were in the temple when we do this. We are out in the world doing this uh, all the time as part of the body of Christ. This is with us the whole time. And that is the picture we have here. It starts at the head, flows all the way to the beard, onto the robes, and then it lists the, the bottom of the robe too. So the picture is one of completeness, head to toe, covered in this oil. It says, it is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Israel. Now, Jew is often used, it's one of those strange things that you find in the Bible, Jew is often used as a picture of blessing in the Bible. Just be sensitive to that when you're reading. You'll, you'll often see allusions because it's, it's slightly mysterious, it's something precious, as particularly in a Middle Eastern church. It's slightly mysterious, it kind of just appears every morning, even if there's been no rain, you, you know, you'll notice the, the grass is wet. It brings nourishment, life, sustenance and growth to the land out there. And that is why it is often used as a good illustration. Even God refers to himself as Jew in a few passages. Now the Mount Hermon, this was actually one of the highest capped, uh, highest mountains in Israel up the north. It's actually snow-capped. There's actually a ski resort on Mount Hermon today, the only ski resort uh, in Israel. It's quite a popular one and a pretty, pretty good one, actually. But it formed a, a triangle with two other lower mountains that are, are quite significant in Judaism. You remember it was on Mount Hermon, where they believe the transfiguration happened. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, in Judaism, Mount Hermon's got a lot of sort of mystical things written about it. But I believe it's used here just because it is that one of the highest mountains and therefore the water comes down from it and you get this picture that the dew comes down upon the whole of the land from there. And I believe it's trying to give you the same picture as head to toe, top to bottom with the mountains in, in this time, just with the landscape imagery. To show the completeness of the unity of the spirit in the body, it gives you the illustration, it's healthy, it brings life, and it's beautiful. For the Lord commanded the blessing. How does the psalm end? It is like the Jew of Hermon. And then he says, for, the Lord command, for, Lord, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. And that's really just a wonderful way to sum up this uh, psalm here. We've got one more in this little section. As you can see, it's only another one that is three verses. Let's just go straight through it. Behold, bless the Lord, all servants of the Lord, who serve by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the sanctuary and bless the Lord. And may the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Behold, again, look, take notice. You see, this is one of those things that he's starting the psalm again with, behold, look, take notice. He says, bless the Lord, all servants of the Lord. Now, this is actually the way most commentators assume this psalm is, is actually a two-way conversation between the pilgrims. So this would be the final thing that would be sung. Remember I said all these pilgrims sing these psalms as they journey up to the house of the Lord. This one is the one they say when they're on their way home. So think about that. So the pilgrims now are on their way home. It's either very early morning and they are actually saying, there's actually a little conversation going on here. So what you have is the pilgrims who are leaving, they're heading home, speaking to the priests who are left in the house of the Lord, ministering night and day in the sanctuary. So the pilgrims say to the Levites, verses 1 and 2, they say, Behold, bless the Lord, all servants of the Lord, who serve by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the sanctuary and bless the Lord. 
So that's what they would say to the serving Levites. Now, when it says to bless the Lord, it means speak of his wonderful works, speak of his character, speak of his love, uh, speak, speak good about him, basically. Exalt his name, lift him up, lead us in praise, which was all the roles of what the Levites were supposed to do. And as I was thinking about this, because one of the things you'll know is the Levites were responsible for the worship in the house of the Lord. And it made me think a lot today about the jobs that, that worship leaders do. Um, I think this is a very good model for that. They bless the Lord, obviously, with worship, but also they bless the pilgrims with the service there. And this is actually kind of what's happening in this psalm. The pilgrims are giving this final exhortation to encourage the priests continue doing your service night and day. We've been blessed as we've come here again for this festival. Now we're on our way home. You guys have to stay here and do this night and day. Continue blessing the Lord. Do it night and day. And this is a good lesson for us because today in the church we're all priests in that sense. The body of Christ should never cease to have a voice declaring the goodness of God. It says you do it night and day. In darkness and in light, the church should always be speaking and proclaiming the glories of the Lord. And the pilgrims say, lift up your hands to the sanctuary and bless the Lord. Now, they're to do it with lifted hands. Now, this is, you'll often see people praying in the Old Testament, lifting their hands. Um, you'll see people in churches today lifting their hands when they, when they worship or when they pray. It's a posture that was really symbolizing submission, actually, or surrender, uh, to something higher than you. That's the idea of it. It also symbolizes an expectancy, uh, a desire to, be, to receive and be blessed from God. They're all some of the reasons why you have them doing this. It was a common posture for Jewish prayer. You see it, like I said, all through the Bible. And you see it in the New Testament too. Remember in 1 in, uh, Timothy, where Paul, uh, he says, I want the men in every place to pray lifting up holy hands, that's what he's talking about there. It's, it's a Jewish method of prayer, basically, because it, it means you're in submission to the Lord. And he's speaking to Timothy as a leader of the church here. That's, I believe, why he's addressing the men particularly there. As these are the pastoral epistles, he says. I want you to be leading by example. I want you to be praying in a, in a posture of submission to the Lord. It's showing that you are uh, in that position. It's a, a wonderful bit of text. So we have here back in the psalm this exhortation from these leaving pilgrims to the Levites um, to continue, to acknowledge, thanking them for their spiritual duty and encouraging them to continue. And then you have verse 3, which most people assume is the reply that would have been said back to the pilgrims as they're leaving. So they say, bless the Lord, and then basically they get a blessing back in return, which is one of the duties of the priests also. It says, may the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Now, you might recognize this from Numbers chapter 6. It starts with almost the exact same uh, construction in the Hebrew there. May the Lord bless you and keep you. His face shine upon you. Remember that, the priestly blessing that was said by the Levites. This is very similar. It says, may the Lord bless you from Zion. The Levites appreciated the reciprocal nature of what was happening here with these leaving pilgrims, and they then thus pronounced the blessing upon the pilgrims. And this is a good lesson for us. You see, there is always a blessing to be had from the Lord when we approach his sanctuary and when we bless his name. Just as the pilgrims have been blessed in Zion, they'd come there for their pilgrimage, they'd given their offerings, they'd prayed, they'd done their sacrifices. And th these are the blessings I'm talking about. I'm not talking about physical or any prosperity. I'm just talking about the blessings that we get, the, the things from our salvation that we have, the presence, the dwelling of the Lord, uh, the richness that we have in Christ, the, uh, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, as we said in one of these psalms previously, they were blessed in Zion, 
prophetically, we were blessed in Zion. We were blessed out of Zion. Christ came to Zion. He came out of Zion. The gospel came out of Zion. The church came out of Zion originally. And we are blessed by that too. And I believe one day, prophetically, in fulfillment of that Davidic covenant, he will come back to Zion. And it says when he comes back, the whole world will be blessed out of Zion. But also, I think we should seek to ensure that just in a, a sort of spiritual application to this, in our own countries and sanctuaries that we might have in the churches, that we are a body that does bless people. If people are coming in to the house of the Lord, where we as the priests are conducting that service, just like these priest people were, we should bless people. People should be blessed when they come into a place where the Lord is being exalted and magnified and lifted up. Uh, and that is one of the attitudes we should have when we come to church, rather than just coming uh, with all the different things that we do come with, which are not wrong necessarily, to receive and to give and to do all these other things that, that are part of the functioning of the body. But we should remember, we are all priests, not just me as the pastor or, or the leaders in any sense, that the priesthood is for all believers. We would all take the place of those people, the Levites there, who bless the pilgrims or anyone who walks into the house of the Lord should receive that blessing simply because we're extolling and glorifying the name of Jesus Christ. And that is a blessing to the whole world. And then it ends with that little phrase, he who made heaven and earth. And this is the final verse. And I love that the Songs of Ascent, this is the final word of the Songs of Ascent, ends with just a reminder of who it is that we're worshipping. The Lord of heaven and earth, the sovereign king. And this is like a bookend, because do you remember right back into, I think, one of the very first Songs of Ascent, uh, 121, I believe. It says, I lift my eyes up to the mountains from where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Exactly the same phrase. And it's bookends on, the, on all of these psalms. The pilgrim's journey from start to finish is, is within those two statements. The Lord who made heaven and earth. That is our journey and that is our destination. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.